0: Welcome to the 361st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome pioneering HIV, AIDS, and global health researcher and activist Greg Gonsalves. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or app COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, October 19th, 2021, there are 4,904,742 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. Headline is, UNAIDS is deeply saddened by the death of Manuel da Quinta. And this appeared on the unaids.org website, June 14th, 2021. The UNAIDS family is deeply saddened by the death from COVID-19 of our dear colleague and friend Manuel da Quinta. We offer our deepest condolences to his husband Ricardo and to his family and friends in general. Since 2017, Manuel worked as a UNAIDS community support and human rights advisor for the multi-country UNAIDS office for Argentina, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay. But many of us knew him in the many roles he held and the tremendous work he did around the world as part of the UNAIDS family for more than 24 years Advocating for the rights and leadership of people living with HIV and the populations most vulnerable to HIV, including the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex community, migrants and refugees, sex workers, indigenous peoples, and young people. And well represented the essence of UNAIDS mission and vision, and the reason why all of us get up every day to fulfill our duties and purpose. As a strong advocate for human rights and social equality, he always stood up against all forms of injustice, including internally at UNAIDS, where for many years he was the chair of the UNAIDS Staff Association. Manuel was an HIV activist since 1990 and accumulated a vast experience of community work with organizations working on behalf of people living with HIV in several countries in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He joined UNAIDS in 1997, starting in the communications department, managing multimedia projects on HIV. Later in 2005, he co-founded UN Plus, an initiative that brings together United Nations system staff living with HIV. Since then, he's worked in UNAIDS teams in Geneva, Bangkok, Dakar, and Buenos Aires. Manuel was a person with great positive energy, an enormous willingness to make even the impossible possible, bringing a deep passion to everything he undertook. He was also a loyal friend to many of us. Manuel left us at the early age of 59 years and will be deeply missed. We wish to express our deep sorrow at his passing and to reiterate our solidarity and warmth to the great community that has worked with Manuel in the HIV response over so many years and to all those who've known him around the world and who mourn his departure. The of Manuel de Quinta, unaids.org website from June of this year. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and this is one that uh, we've been very much anticipating. Let me introduce Greg Gonsalves. Greg Gonsalves is an expert in policy modeling on infectious disease and substance use, as well as the intersection of public policy and health equity. His research focuses on the use of quantitative models for improving the response to epidemic diseases. For more than 30 years, he worked on HIV, AIDS, and other global health issues with several organizations including the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, the Treatment Action Group, Gay Men's Health Crisis, and the AIDS and Rights Alliance for Southern Africa. He was also a fellow at the Open Society Foundation and in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School from 2011 to 2012. He is a 2011 graduate of Yale College and received his PhD from Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the School of Public Health. 2017 and he is a 2018 MacArthur fellow award winner greg gonsalves welcome to COVID calls thanks scott so let me start the way i generally do just find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there today
1: well i was prepared for this one i'm calling from connecticut um in the united states in the northeast um the New England area is one of the most highly vaccinated areas in the country. We have about 70% of people fully vaccinated and we have um, very, very few deaths, hospitalizations and cases in, in the state right now. We have about um, 609 cases um, daily average over the past week, about uh, half of that uh, hospitalized and then a, a very, very small proportion, um, uh, about seven people died of, uh, of COVID-19 over the past week or so.
0: I mean, what about at at Yale? Have things sort of resumed something that looked like pre-COVID? What are the protocols?
1: Um, So we've had very few infections at Yale. Um, What's important is that we've had vaccine mandates at Yale. And so all the students, staff, and faculty have been required to have been vaccinated and the compliance has been extraordinary um, in the upper 90s. I think for all of these um, constituent parts of the university, staff, students, and faculty, um, and so we've had very few infections. That being said, um, masking is mandatory indoors, but we also have an, an indoor mask mandate in, in New Haven, um, which which Yale is part of. Um, and so um, while we're having classes face-to-face, which is great to see students and faculty and colleagues again, um, mask wearing and vaccination is sort of the core of what we're doing here at Yale.
0: I've heard people use language to- you know, like endemic, and to say that there's parts of the United States where you could even say COVID-19 is now um, something people live with, or it's endemic, while other parts of the country it's still pandemic, I I imagine that's a sort of mangling of of epidemiological terms, but the the sentiment is real. I I mean, how do you describe the variability across, let's say, looking from Florida, Texas to Connecticut, because there are different worlds in terms of risk right now?
1: Yeah, so look, I mean, Epidemics are a stochastic phenomena. That means they have a certain amount of randomness inherent in, in them as a, as a, um, something that happens in the world. Um, so, lots of stuff in the epidemic we can't predict, and it's it it, it has its own city idiosyncrasies um, that um, we we can't put into our models. That being said, um, the vast majority of infections that are happening around the country, the vast majority have hospitalizations and deaths, are among the unvaccinated. And if you go on the New York Times website, or whatever your favorite um, aggregator of US data is, you'll see that um, there's state by state, um, stark differences in the number of people who are vaccinated. Um, and so, um, again, like 70% of people in Connecticut are vaccinated. That's not saying um, we've, we've reached our goal, nor that there are sort of disparities within that 70% fully covered uh, that, that we have to address. But you know there are states in the American South that have you know far 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 fewer people vaccinated as, as a proportion of their populations, um, and you know while there may be some randomness, seasonality, whatever you want to think your favorite sort of covariate in your model might be, um, the 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 fact that vaccination is probably the, the the predominant driver of what's happening in the U.S. now with the pandemic.
0: Oh like others i'm I follow you on on social media and I keep up with your columns. So in many ways i've I've kind of ridden along this pandemic with the issues that that you're writing about and that you're talking about. And having said that, I still want to ask this question about a memory that you might have, something that really sticks with you that defines this pandemic, something you know your own personal experience with the pandemic that you might be hanging on to as a kind of signature memory of this time.
1: Well, you know, as we sort of, closer to two years um, of living with this virus there's sort of lots of different touch points. I remember being on a phone call with a friend of mine from New York City early on in the pandemic when um, you know the mayor of New York and the governor of New York were sparring it out for who is in charge of, of this newly emerging um, uh, health crisis. and there was even fights between the health department and Health and Human Services in um, New York City about who is in charge of the pandemic. Um, which led to delays in New York City's response to the pandemic um, with all this bureaucratic infighting. And I remember that very clearly, um, the sort of desperation of people, even in in sort of states that um, subsequently have done fairly well with vaccination and controlling the epidemic to, you know, 18 months, two years later. um, There was an early um, memory that's pretty clear with me. The earliest one is when we got together in a conference room here at Yale to work with our Chinese colleagues and postdocs and faculty to think about what was happening um in wuhan and 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 uh the People's republic um because we early on we we'd had no conception that this was really going to be a, a worldwide pandemic um two weeks later of course you know the everything changed but really really early on you know we we didn't have any um real conception of what was about to befall us
0: that sparring among different agencies—I mean—was that a, a signal to you? I mean, you're a person who's followed public health and public health agencies for a long time. I mean, that for people on the outside who might not know how to translate that—that might have just seemed like normal bureaucracy. But you're pointing to something I think is really important.
1: Well, I mean, you're a disaster historian, and um, there's a, a person, Juliet Cam, who um, I. I was part of a New York Times discussion about vaccine allocation mm. months ago now, and we were chatting offline during um, the preparation. Group, he talked to me about a book called Katrina, a history uh, 1915 to 2015 with the idea that um, Katrina was a, a singular hurricane in terms of meteorological history, but in real sort of the history of human events, um, he was paid, the way he was paid for it for, for over a century and sort of policies, in New Orleans, Louisiana, and that the Greater Gulf region, um, the bickering between public health officials, the sort of lack of preparedness, the sort of um, total hot mess that we saw with the federal response—you um, know—is characteristic of, of our sort of fractured, weak public health system in the U.S. and our sort of the state of our politics, you know, over the past decade or more, and so. Um, You know, epidemiology um, outside of the 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 politics is is sort of an ivory tower conception. You know, the mathematical models we design and we um, execute can tell you a lot about how the virus might do without human intervention, um, besides for vaccines and treatments, etc. And you know, nobody could have predicted the sort of uh, nobody could have Really believed the kind of response we had from our um, federal, state, and local agencies back uh, starting into the beginning of two thousand twenty.
0: I'm glad you name checked the Katrina book too. Uh, that's uh, a colleague of of mine, Andy Horowitz, wrote that book, and it won the highest award you can win in the American historical profession last year. So it is. I mean, I think it's a good one to to point to that these there's a lot of preconditions that go. Um, That's not something that just unfolds over a day, over a weekend, as it appeared. I think so. So many people in March. Um, I want to come to a more recent sort of episode in your in your work, and this was a story that appeared in the New York Times in September. I'm just going to read the lead of the story because I think it really sets a tone. Is um, they wrote a small band of longtime AIDS activists, fed up with what they regard as President Biden's failure to scale up coronavirus vaccine manufacturing for global use, deposited a fake mountain of bones outside the home of Ron Klain his chief of staff on Wednesday to represent the lives that they say have been lost to the presidents in action. And there's, is a photo there and there's a U-Haul trailer and there's a, a picture of a pile of bones and there's Greg Gonsalves. Uh, and it's quite a story and it's, um, I think it bridges maybe some important moments in your in your career? Because I wanted to really start with this um, because I think it, you know, it brings so many different aspects of the things you've been working on together. So, I mean, guess basic question, why did you do this at Ron Klein's house? Why drop off the bones?
1: Well, first of all, like, um, you know, I may be sitting in a university now and I pretend to be an academic, In my daily life, but you know the point is my my history is really in AIDS activism and health activism. Like, well, I worked on AIDS. I worked on a whole other set of diseases, from hepatitis C to TB, um, Ebola, um, over the course of my career. And um, you know, sometimes science isn't enough. Sometimes, sort of the standard ways of getting attention: op eds, meeting with your member of Congress, um, strongly worded emails and phone calls are not enough to to wake people up to what's happening. Um, And just like in the early days of the AIDS epidemic, um, there was sort of an inertia um, or even a benign or malign neglect uh, in terms of confronting the pandemic. And in the context of um, COVID vaccine scale up, um, while we're talking about 70% vaccination in Connecticut and high vaccination coverage in many other places around the US and, and, and in some other countries around the world, like Portugal, for instance, um, most people in the global South, particularly in Africa, have very little access to vaccines. And it's not not uh, 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 an epidemiological crisis, uh, an industrial crisis, it's a political crisis. Um, there is some strange, strange um, reticence or resistance in the White House to scaling up uh, MRNA and other vaccines um, outside of the context of what the manufa- the original manufacturers, the originator companies want to do. Um, groups like Public Citizen in DC, PrEP for All in New York City, Thomas Friedman, who is a former CDC commissioner in the US. Um, uh, and his group resolved to save lives i have all said we can scale up mRNA vaccines much more quickly by sharing the technology with contractors in the US or with um, pharmaceutical companies around the world and there's pretty widespread consensus among clinicians, scientists, advocates, um, global health leaders that this needs to be done but there's singular resistance in the White House that is either from David Kessler Jeff Zients, Ron Klain, or the president himself. Um, And so um, we thought going in front of the president's house would probably be not very interesting because people protest in the White House a lot, but the closest person to the president is Ron Klain. And there's good reason to believe that he's giving the president advice, that it doesn't matter. Um, uh, It's not a political um, deficit for you if you ignore the global pandemic. We have to keep sort of the pharmaceutical industry on our side, whatever. Ron lane is is obstacle number one to global vaccine scale up. And so we went to his house. We went during the middle of the day. Nobody's like, likely to be home. Um, we understood that you know going to somebody's house is, is sort of an escalation which could um, offend some people. We went in the middle of the day. Um, we didn't scream or use bullhorns. We didn't make loud noises. We brought a pile of bones. We had a press conference for about 20 minutes. Um, while the Se- Secret Service watched us um, go about our business, incredibly peaceful, um, respectful, uh, but not respectful of Ron Klain's role in perpetuating vaccine apartheid.
0: It really. Thank you for explaining that. And and I mean, it really taps into kind of a, a challenge here with with COVID, which is sort of discovering who the advocates are. And you know, there's the long COVID community, I guess, but it's pretty disparate, and they haven't yet. Um, There's not sort of one national organization that I'm aware of that's advocating. Um, And and so I wonder, I guess my question is, how do you think an action like that can build? I mean, it does it does seem like there needs to be a sort of broader social movement around vaccine access, but then many other aspects of healthcare access that COVID provides.
1: Well, it's interesting. The conversation I told you about at the beginning of this broadcast with my friend in um, New York runs an AIDS organization. Um, we were talking about a public health leader in uh, New York City who we were talking about two public health leaders who were sparring with each other whose history was in AIDS. Um, so while we don't have sort of a contingency like we had for ACT UP in which people living with AIDS and their advocates sort of were leading the charge for um, efforts on the disease, many of the people who cut their teeth in ACT UP and have dealt with the AIDS epidemic internationally or, or domestically I've um, been on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. One is because they work in infectious diseases. And like everybody in my department here at Yale, everybody went from whatever disease they're working on to COVID. Um, many of the activists and advocates, which included you know, direct action people like me and the others who, who um, were at Ron Klain's house a few weeks ago, but sort of stayed researchers and clinicians. I've um, really taken up the, the, the mantle to sort of push ahead um, some of these issues on um, on, on sort of COVID vaccine access, but a whole range of other issues. It's a lot of infectious disease, epidemiologists, clinicians, people who come from the AIDS movement on the sort of advocacy side, who've been at the forefront of this. And it makes sense. You know, COVID is a worldwide phenomenon. We're all affected by it. Um, those of us who work in AIDS and have seen one pandemic go by, two pandemics, if wanna count TB, three if we wanna count HCV. Um, you know, really have a, a wealth of experience to, and sort of muscle memory in terms of dealing with sort of recalcitrant governments and drug companies um, and sort of sprung into action and know what to do. And so, you know, that's what a lot of the work is being done. I'm on a daily WhatsApp chat with um, people from all around the world. It's access to medicines, people, many people who we, we've known each other for 20, 30 years now because of the fight for anti drugs around the world. Um, um, It's not a mass movement, but it's definitely a, a global movement of people who've been fighting for access to medicines for 20 plus years.
0: Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today with Greg Gonzales. And I think that you know that base is a really um, important one to explore. You know, you said dealt with one pandemic went by, and maybe we can count two, and maybe we can count three. Somebody with your experience, I mean, that's really crucial right now to understand, as you said, how do we get beyond the science, or that the science isn't isn't enough. I guess with that in mind, I hope it's okay. We can go back and and maybe sort of paint in some of your earlier history as an activist, um, because I think drawing that connection across time is really powerful and important. So um, you were, I mean, the the protest with the Bones at Ron Klein's house, I mean, it seems to me to borrow a page from AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, ACT UP, which I think is where you got your start in public health work, yeah. right? Yeah. So how did you discover ACT UP
1: and and what was your role there? So ACT UP was um, started in 1987. Larry Kramer and a I- group of other people, it's not just Larry, um, met at the gay and lesbian center in New York City to sort of say, look, this is not enough. You know, the sort of, um, nascent service industry that was caring for people living with AIDS was not enough that we needed political movement to sort of spur um, government action on research and development treatments, civil rights, et cetera. Um, and ACT UP, you know, started in 1987 in New York, but it rapidly exploded all across the world, um. You know, there's a French movie called Beats Per Minute, which is about Act of Paris, but there are chapters all over the world. Um, I first joined in 1989, 1990 in Boston because I had met somebody who was HIV positive and was the first person I knew with HIV, but there's no internet, no place to go for information. So I looked for information and I found the flyer for Act Up. I got there. Lots of people looking for similar answers and um, frustrated uh, that there were not a lot of answers in terms of um, what was available for treatment. And there are there companies and there are politicians in our state of Massachusetts that were blocking um, access to drugs through expanded access or um, important bills and appropriations at the state level for for AIDS, like Michael Dukakis, who was the governor then. Um, And so got involved in ACT UP, moved to New York and joined the Mothership, which was ACT UP New York, um, and um, joined the Treatment and Data Committee, which is very focused on drug development um, and research. And um threw myself into that. Although I was trained sort of initially in sort of literature and compared literature, I had a little bit of science background um, and threw myself into that work and um worked on a whole host of issues. Um, but in around 92 as act up started to to spin apart, um, like many social movements do, there's a book um Poor People's Movements, um, my Francis Fox Piven that talks about how mm-hmm um social movements have these sort of life cycles act up reaching sort of um a, a crisis point in its life cycle and treatment action groups spun off um and my friend peter staley um one of the first um pieces of work that we that was done as treatment action group was putting a condom over jesse helms's house um and so the bones in front of Klein's house were mm-hmm. peter's idea and we worked with the gay mafia of scene broadway scene shops in new york to make that prop, just as um, he had made a giant condom to go for Jifty Helms' house back in the early '90s, and so, um, hmm. while well, the two of us were the sort of the old guard, there were there were you know, sort of new AIDS activists there. But you know, I joined ACT UP. We formed Treatment Action Group, and then you know, the rest of my life sort of proceeded from there.
0: I found an article in the New York Times. I went back and and from 1994, it shows you sitting at a a meeting sitting next to president president bill clinton i I think it was the first meeting of his hiv aids um, action group you know i guess i don't know if it was a cabinet level i'm not quite sure of the context but there you were representing the treatment action group and again i mean first of all i think it was it really speaks to the time in which you go from sort of one presidency and i guess reagan bush presidency to another in which you know hiv aids is no longer just an issue that you know, the American, United States government can sweep aside or say this is part of a marginal group, so we don't pay attention to it. So I mean, I think it speaks to the success of ACT UP and Treatment Action Group. But I, I wonder if you, you know, can cast your mind back to that time. What did you, what was possible then? I mean, in, in terms of politics, but also in terms of the science.
1: So a couple of things. One is, um, that was the White House Conference on AIDS, the one and only. Um, you know, I remember being in a hotel room in D.C. or suburban Virginia, or Maryland, during an AIDS clinical trials group meeting, a scientific meeting with a bunch of AIDS activists on election night when Bill Clinton got elected. And their there tears flowed. You know, we had made it through the Reagan and Bush administrations, who had been just spectacularly horrible on HIV. And all of a sudden, we had a new president who, you know, was going to change things. Um, fast forward and... Um, we were gravely disappointed. The, the the president really didn't make AIDS a priority. He ended up doing don't ask, don't tell. I mean, a whole, you know, maintain the ban on needle exchange. It was a complete disappointment to us. Um, and so um, at that White House conference of AIDS, which is early on, um, you know, we were sort of laying out our agenda. And I was talking on research and said we should double the NIH budget. It'll never happen. It did happen. And um, it wasn't my fault. It wasn't my my idea. But I think like um, biomedical research funding was sort of a bipartisan um, item, which could could um, make its way through the sort of 90s sort of, um, triangulated politics. But all the other important things, we really didn't get much out of the, the Clinton administration and were deeply disappointed um, until 90, 1996. We didn't have actual treatments that could save our lives. Um, we were working with drugs like ACT, DDI, DDC, D4T, which were like, does not do anything at all to keep you alive? Um, and having sort of tortured discussions with FDA and others about how to do trials to a certain small and sort of medium-sized benefits from these sort of um, um, not very potent drugs. Um, in 90, 1996, things changed. We're still in the middle of the Clinton administration. Um, and towards the end of his term, Um, It's pretty clear that these drugs are are game savers, but uh, game changers, but um, this, and this will remind you of what's happening now, that most of the world can't get access to them. And the Clinton administration um, was blocking access to these AIDS drugs by um, threatening trade trade sanctions or putting people on a a watch list, um, countries like South Africa and others, for talking about generic production and breaking patents on these drugs. And so um, everything old is new again. You know, the fights we had with the Clinton administration as it exited in at the end of the last century are starting all over again about who gets access to life-saving uh, medical interventions, whether it's AIDS drugs then or, or vaccines now for COVID. Um, a lot of the same fights are, are just happening in the same almost exact way, except for the agents involved.
0: How did you understand that that hesitancy at that time uh, to to not be more aggressive with funding for uh, life-saving treatments but also for vaccine um, availability and I mean what was is this is this the power of, of big pharmaceutical that is bipartisan in the United States in the 1990s or or is there something else here I mean, there's still that the LGBTQ community was somehow still politically marginal. And so even a Democrat could get away with sort of having a meeting and then saying, we've done our work here and moved on. I'm just trying to understand how a president can say no to something, which is so obviously uh, that's such a morally bankrupt position. I mean, so obviously morally bankrupt and yet both parties do it.
1: Um, because we don't matter. Right. I mean, I just wrote a piece for the nation this past week. Um, um, talking and, and, you know, to be fair, to the Clinton administration and all other patrons. We, we've done this for like centuries, right? I, I went through sort of history of science and medicine and the sort of way we've addressed cholera, yellow fever, um, smallpox in the United States. Um, it's about who has power and who doesn't have power. And the gay community was an important constituency of the Democratic Party, but we weren't that powerful. Um, and so when it came to push comes to shove, if you're we trying to show um, America that, you know, you were tough on drugs, you'd maintain the ban on needle exchange. If you wanted to show that um, you, you were not hostage to special interests, you know, you'd cave in on don't ask, don't tell. And so, like, we were not high on the agenda. It's Larry Kramer used to call us, said we, we were treated as disposable people. Um, and, um, you know, we don't matter in DC, um, you know, we were, we were they're were willing to write us off um, if there were higher interests involved, and a lot of the times that's about the pharmaceutical industry. In the context of AIDS drugs and, and COVID vaccines, the pharmaceutical lobby is is incredibly powerful in the U.S. It's the largest lobby in D.C. Um, it's bipartisanly um, 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 integrated into sort of both parties in the United States. Um, you know, um, Kathleen Rice, who represents my district in East Meadow in New York on Long Island, where I grew up, Democrat, but, you know, has been key leader against sort of drug pricing reform in the current um, Biden bill that's passing to Congress. And you're like, really? And then you just start scratching the surface and realize how much money she gets from the drug companies. Same with Kristen Sinema in, in, in Arizona. There's a large sort of... Um, um, blood sucking the squid phenomenon that is the pharmaceutical industry in dc and they're in- incredibly powerful um and you know they think they own the fda it's pretty clear when we talk about covid vaccines to they think they own the white house um you know i would boil out screams and yells anytime anybody talks about anything that sort of breaks the mold of um his absolute monopoly control on on his vaccine
0: mm. i i think in numbers i looked at <clears throat> excuse me that um Maybe there's something like three full-time lobbyists for every senator. I mean, there's, there's a staff, full-time pharmaceutical lobbyist for each senator.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's enormous. And, you know, even before COVID, many of us worked on FDA issues and drug approval issues. Um, you know, we are seeing a sort of vast deregulation of, of the pharmaceutical industry and drug approval, which is, you know, if you know the history of FDA, you um, and francis kelsey and the thalidomide disaster and sort of the whole history from the beginning of the 20th century about patent medicines um, we are moving back in history to the beginning of the 20th century not the 21st in terms of what's happening and it's largely because it's pharma um that wants to sort of roll back um key protections that are embedded in in, in fda law in the united states and this was before COVID, right so there's a deregulatory agenda um, that's sort of been on the march for a long time in dc um and um it's about ceding control to the industry to do what it wants when it wants and in the way it wants. And you know, the idea that, you know, the White House would ex- exert pressure through the Defense Production Act or other sort of mechanisms, mm-hmm. it's just um they must just say, like, how could we possibly do that? Even if it's legal under the law, I think of the consequences to us and our, our our campaigns and our party and mm-hmm. you know, if we if we if if we disappoint pharma, they're just gonna to go to the other side and support. I mean, it's just you know, that's the kind of logic that seems to be at work. It's not about public health or or human lives, it's about sort of cold hard political cash. You know, it's citizens united um, redux.
0: Yeah, I have to say, Greg, I mean you're situated in public health, but you're you're a powerful advocate for historical thinking. <laughs> I'd have to say, I mean, as a historian too, I'm I'm happy when you talk about the history of science and 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 you know I think it's important. In many different ways. One, I mean, you said I saw in twenty eighteen. You after you won the MacArthur Award, you know, you told NPR that that AIDS for you was a wake up call. It wasn't just a virus. And I'm quoting you here: the epidemic was man made. Infectious disease will always be with us, but epidemics are a human creation. And that that's, and that's a powerful statement because it's not to downplay the science and the role of the science, but that if it's 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 sort of a chastisement. In a sense, of a modern society that thinks if we just get the science right, and if we get the technological fix to our problem, then we'll solve it. But you know, your discussion about um, you know, pharmaceutical deregulation taking us back to the early 20th century, I mean that's a, that's a correction of, of that. And I guess I think that's an important point, but it kind of puts us back in a in a tight spot in terms of how do we know what to research, what strings to pull. It's only so many hours of the day, you know, to do our scientific research or to do our social science research and to be activists. It's exhausting to do all of it. So I guess my question, I just want to get you to expand on that idea a little bit, because I agree with your analysis 100 percent, but it leaves us in a place wondering how to act, I think.
1: So I think I said, you know, infectious disease will always be with us. Epidemics or man-made human creations back um, during the Ebola pandemic in West Africa. and, uh, I, I, you know, I rehearsed, you know, I revived it for 2018 mm. during the Arthur stuff. Um, but, you know, it's pretty clear that, um, so there's, there's two authors who have been very influential to the way I think about things. There's a guy named Alex DeWall, um, who wrote a book called Famine Crimes that talked about how sort of the humanitarian international sort of has perpetuated itself, um, and perpetuated, um, famines, and that famines are political constructs. It's not about food scarcity. It's about political decisions that create famines, um, and relying on sort of ideas from a mark to that like famines don't happen in in democracies, etc. And so, you know, the idea is that the AIDS epidemic, the Ebola epidemic, the COVID-19 pandemic um, have epidemiological roots, but their their explosion into pandemics really depend on human agency. Um, And then there's another book called Why Nations Fail that Daron glue and um, James Robinson wrote several years ago about this sort of sweep of history of, of sort of ups and downs of human society. And there's this one paragraph in it, and I think it's in the introduction and I'll mangle it, but they said, you know, poverty doesn't happen by accident or mistake. They're, they're, it happens by political choices made by political leaders, right? And said, you know, why nations fail is not because, you know, guns, germs, and steel, or, something in the character of, of various um, nations and continents and countries, it's that predatory elites create conditions for poverty um, and, and and strip countries bare um in a way that is consensual by political elites. And this and so as I read that I'm like, gee, that seems pretty apt in terms of ill health. Ill the reason that people die from COVID and don't die from COVID, the people are getting vaccines and don't get vaccines is not about whether we can make them whether they're effective, whether the science is right or wrong, it's because somebody in the White House, somebody in a boardroom decided that it was not important for, for people in, uh, in Senegal or Cote d'Ivoire or, or Kenya or Mauritania to get access to these vaccines, that they didn't matter, that they were disposable as we were during the AIDS epidemic. Well,
0: in 2006, you moved to South Africa? and spend a few years there and it seems like that was a turning point for you maybe out of um, your role in treatment action group and 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 more sort of activist-centered organizations maybe give us some context for that because that was from then you you went into public health after that into academic public health
1: well so zaki akwan who ran the treatment action campaign or was one of the leaders of the treatment action campaign a south african group um back in 2000 came to new york um because he was a a gay man he knew and an artist um you know made films with his uh lover then roommate jack lewis um knew sort of the lgbt community in new york and came to me and my colleague mark harrington at treatment acting group and said you know we realized how you you trained yourself to understand the science as non-scientists we just started this group called treatment action campaign where you come to south africa and um help us set up some trainings to teach our, our members. Um, and we are like, sure. And we had no clue. I mean, people like Health Gap um, and other organizations who had done earlier treatment access work in the late 90s were all over this. But we, we were very focused on the U.S. situation. Went to South Africa, realized, Jesus, this is not like treatment action group or ACT UP. This is a huge mass movement. that can bring 30,000 people in front of parliament. We can never bring anything like that. Um, and so um, went and did trainings um, on AIDS science and medicine and opportunistic infections and all of that, immunology, everything, for the members of TAC, um, largely who were poor people from townships with rudimentary education, um, but who easily, um, with a little bit of um, uh, uh, you know, over the course of three days, could master the basics of the immune system, how the virus works, et cetera, and turned it into this giant sort of world, uh, nationwide campaign of treatment education, um, in clinics and in townships all across the country. Um, that was a heady time. AIDS, AIDS conference in Durban in two thousand, Nelson Mandela, Bill Clinton, others challenging the world about medical apartheid with antiretroviral drugs. Um, and it shifted the the sort of thinking of many AIDS researchers across the world and AIDS acts across the world that we had a now we had a sort of international global fight. Mm. Um, and in those early years of the twenty the two thousands, um, you know, I and others formed an international treatment preparedness coalition, which was a global coalition of sort of ACT UP like organizations, sort of feisty AIDS organizations, all across the world, from Moscow to you know New Delhi to you know, to La Paz, et cetera. Um, And, you know, I was part of a global movement which was about HIV, but started to become about TB and and HCV, which were killing people across the world. Um, And um, the only reason I went back to school is because, you know, now, by this time, it'd been almost 20 years at, um, well, at least 15, between 15 and 20 years in the trenches doing this work, and I wanted a little bit of a break. I didn't realize what was going to happen afterwards. It was was not really planned really well. so I just ended up getting an undergraduate degree, you know, in my 40s rather than in my 20s when I should have. Um, and then, ended, and I didn't plan on being a public health PhD student nor a, PhD, a public health professor. It all sort of just happened.
0: I Well, I want to come back to that in a second. But just to come to South Africa, I mean, you talked about a mass movement that can bring 30,000 people to a protest. Is that because of the scale of, you know, the the virus and the impact there and the population, or was it because, I mean, you just used the word apartheid. Is it because South Africa was itself going through this radical political transformation had just been through it and sort of casting off apartheid? It's not over. I don't want to say that, but I mean, it, that was a political convulsion at that time. And, and it, AIDS and anti-apartheid work are joined at that time. I mean, that's really public health and yeah. politics in one, right? Yeah,
1: I mean, so a couple of things. One is it's the biggest AIDS epidemic in the world. So like people's own sort of um, motivation to sort of act up um, was huge. But many of the leaders of the treatment action campaign and other groups were anti-apartheid leaders. Zaki Akhmat got arrested and sent to jail for trying to burn down or burning down his school. Um, you know, many of them were part of a, the Marxist workers' tendencies some, some, and some splinter group um, in... in, in uh, South Africa during the 80s and 90s, and you know, many of them were um, lawyers that that represented people during the apartheid years, etc. So, like, there was a movement history that this built on, um, but also the LGBT movement in South Africa, which you know ended up with a constitution which enshrined uh, the right to gay marriage way before to LGBT rights before we had done so in the United States. So there was a much sort of richer history of mobilization that they built on. Um, uh, that allowed them to sort of do this mass movement. They're, you know, they also they had the chops in organizing from the anti-apartheid movement. That being said, I don't understand why we couldn't do it in the U.S. But I think it's because we this much more um, concentrated epidemic among gay men and and other marginalized groups, um, unlike the sort of generalized epidemic they have in South Africa.
0: That's a, I mean that's a, a, an important insight because that intersection of struggle for racial equality, LGBT equality, and then public health access in South Africa is one you would think it would happen in the United States. And I guess that sort of brings us back into COVID. And, you know, the context of last year with George Floyd's murder and the obvious inequalities which break along many fracture points in the United States, but racial is certainly one of them. Those intersections are so obvious to me, to anybody who takes a minute to look at them. And, you know, this South Africa case is a powerful one to work with. And yet, I still don't feel like we've seen that intersection in terms of a mass movement of people in America calling for racial equality, LGBTQ rights, and health simultaneously. Or, I mean, it's there, but it's not at the scale that I suppose can make vaccines broadly available, or that can increase research budgets. I mean, it's not accomplishing what it needs to, and I don't, I don't mean to editorialize here, but I, I just wonder your sense of that, why it's not well, yet happened in the U.S.
1: Well, You know, look, my nation piece last week basically sort of lays um, the failures in American public health at the feet of white supremacy and sort of our our history of racial segregation and slavery. Um, You know, and so if we don't confront race in the United States, we're not going to confront our public health crisis, which has been about depriving the undeserving of resources. Um, That being said, you know, all my adult life, well, all my life almost, the right has been organizing um, against sort of any kind of solidarity, right? Um, and creating, you know, what um, um, oh God, Timothy Snyder is called sadopopulism, um, uh, a, a sort of populism that actually gives people some sort of status um, through their whiteness, um, but takes away everything else uh, right from, Underneath them, right in, right right in their faces, as um, as they sort of stoke sort of division, and it's been a very powerful tool in the United States. It still is. All the debates about, you know, vaccination and 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 all the discussions about Black Lives Matter. It's all been about politics, division, and separating people and getting people to work against their own interests. There's an obvious connection to racial equity to health justice, to environmental justice, um, to LGBTQ um, equality, it's all tied together. Um, but these connections have not been made. Um, we work on lots of single issues in the US um, and we don't have sort of a united democratic front to sort of say, let's put all this under one um, umbrella, let's get rid of these monsters and then we can we can we can hash out all the details about these individual policies later on. But you know, the Democratic Party, you know, going back to Clinton, we're still Dick Morris's children. It's all a bit about sort of appeasement and sort of triangulation and meeting the Republicans halfway. I mean, essentially Joe Manchin is the president of the United States right now. You know, you know, the, the vast majority of Americans in the Democratic Party support the president's bill, which is really the largest piece of social legislation in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but one man is, is is holding it hostage, and because he's he, he can do it parliamentary from parliamentary um, means, but he also has a lot of support in terms of the sort of chattering classes of political pundits who really think this is the way the world should work.
0: A Moving a constant a constant tacking to a center that doesn't achieve these sort of large scale breakthrough moments in politics. actually
1: a center that is actually to the far right of of where wow. Americans are, at least on this bill.
0: I want to first of all remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls i'm talking to greg gonsalves today and, and greg let's go back i don't want to spend too much time on donald trump but um i do want to kind of go back earlier in the pandemic to that period and you were talking about it earlier in the conversation and what started to play out in the spring in terms of the trump administration's response his own response the way he talked and, and then even what was happening in hhs and cdc was there anything in there that surprised you? Was there anything in there you felt you could intervene in? Like, we all watched it playing out in real time. And those of us who studied disasters were like, I, I just couldn't believe the obvious tools and steps that were at their disposal that they just dismissed.
1: I mean, last year was a catastrophe. I mean, it just, you know, early on, you know, Yasmin... Um, I don't want to butcher her last name, but Yasmeen from The Washington Post wrote a book about the sort of Trump um, experience of the pandemic. And she found an email that I had sent to the White House last March, you know, to Fauci, to, to Fauci, to, to um, I'm repressing all these names, Robert Redfield, Debbie right. Burke. Yeah. Um, But, you know, everybody I could think of, the, the head of HHS, Alex Azar. And I said, what are you doing? You know, um there's we're looking for leadership and we're seeing none of it, thinking that it could appeal to them on sort of rational grounds. And Tony Fauci wrote back to me saying, I always will tell the truth, but you know, but Tony and Debbie Burks and Robert Redfield, all people from the AIDS epidemic. I mentioned to you that many people from the AIDS epidemic were leaders over the past year and a half in sort of challenging the Trump administration and the 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 fallbacks of the Biden administration, but Tony and and Deb and Robert Redfield just capitulated, and I, I don't care what they tell me in retrospect or in real time, is that they went along to get along. They thought being on the inside was more important than than sort of, I'm um, intervening at that point. Yeah, a lot of people were were, were frankly evil, incompetent, um, you know, buffoons during during that time. You know from Jared Kushner to the president himself to the rest of the sort of robes gallery that we can name of, Scott Atlas, for instance. But what about the sort of rank and file people at CDC, NIH, and in HHS, Tony, Deb, and um, Robert Redfield? You know, they could have, three of them could have gotten together at some point last year and said enough is enough and sort of called the question. Maybe like that's not how it works. Their lives have been public service uh, all along. But like, you know, we went through hell last year. Um, We made the pandemic incalculably worse, um, and nobody within the administration seemed to, um, you know, civil, you know, lifetime civil servants, nor political appointees, wanted to sort of um, challenge the president. It's 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 really the darkest day in my lifetime in the United States.
0: Do you think it's left lasting harm? In the public health community, in um, the infrastructure, you know, CDC and HHS. I mean, what's a? It's a little too soon to say, maybe, but I, I asked this question because you know you wrote in the Nation about Scott Atlas recently, and that even for this short period of time in which somebody like Scott Atlas gets a national platform to spread herd immunity ideas, it matters. It, it has a long tail.
1: Well, look. First of all, not to go back to historians, but Elizabeth Fee, who's a historian of um, public health said so, you know we, we've never given a damn about public health in the united states ever really you know we spend three percent of uh every dollar on public health compared to the rest of healthcare. so public health in the united states has been um uh in a shambles for 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 decades pretend, potentially centuries kim downs who's another um historian talks about um the response to cholera and yellow fever and smallpox cholera and smallpox in, in in post-Civil War America, and the way in which they t- turned a blind eye to what was happening among freed slaves, because frankly, they didn't matter. And so we've had like a disaster of a public health system for, for years on end. Um, and so never really sort of raising, rising to sort of the level of what we needed, you know, before the pandemic, we had th- Lost 60,000 public health workers after the Great Recession in 2008, who never came back, and probably a 200,000 more we needed to sort of just fill the gaps um, before COVID 19 hit. We've had a weak social safety net. Elizabeth Bradley, who was a colleague of mine at Yale before she went to go run Vassar, said the difference in life expectancy in the US is probably less due to healthcare spending than it is to social service spending. So we have a frayed social safety net that. Um, And a a weak public health system, all based on the idea that if you start universal programs that protect public health and and, and offer social protections, you got to give it to everybody, and it starts to say there's deserving. There's we're all deserving of of a basic baseline of public health and social protections. So we had a whole um, lead up to the pandemic, which which set us up for failure, and so. you know when it's when people say oh what happened to public health during the pandemic it's like you get what you pay for it was all it was already a mess right and um th- there's been a um a meme or an idea that like public health because of the way the pandemic played out and with things we talked about with its own worst enemy last year there's a lot of misinformation there's a lot of scapegoating um there's a lot of um manipulation about public health information. It was designed to confuse people, but also to, to make people suspicious of, of, of public health advice, of the state in general. You know, there, there's a huge investment in saying that the state um, has no role in our societies because the market's gonna um, provide, right? This is sort of Reaganism all the way through the past right. 40, 50 years. Um, you had to make it happen. You know, it, it really, Scott Atlas, Ron DeSantis have a vested interest in making government not work for you, um, and they 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 did it spectacularly over the past year and a half. Um, you know the state is is in your way; it's a it's an obstacle to freedom, and there's no good that can come out of public health, whether it's vaccines or masks.
0: You see that disinformation campaigns and the anti-vax now becoming mainstreamed. In the United States as, as growing directly from that? I mean, you think it's a it's just a partisan political tactic? Or because it seems to merge with so many other um shadow, you know, QAnon and other kinds of groups, it's this this big agglomeration of conspiracy and anti-government thinking. And of course it's cost a lot of lives, but what do you owe that to?
1: Well, remember, you know, the weird thing about anti-vax stuff is that, you know. Yes, there's sort of the the, the new sort of right wing vaccine conspiracy theories, but Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been a strong anti-vaxxer for a long time. Um, you know, there's you know, there's a joke I heard once, you want to find out you want to find a outbreak of preventable childhood diseases among the unvaccinated, go put a put your Whole Foods on a map and, and draw a circle of 50 miles around it there's a there's a left-wing crunchy hippie version that you know i'm not going to pollute my body with things like vaccines that also drives the anti-vax movement from the left and so it's a weird strange sort of um cultural phenomenon um that people like dan kahan here at the yale law school have talked about in which we have like tribal resistance to to vaccination and other sort of medical interventions that transcends ideology its more about group membership and group affiliation and group and group belonging. Um that's not just about the the loony right. It's also about the loony left.
0: So what's possible right now? Have we topped out in the number of Americans who are going to get vaccinated? Is there still a a way to increase that number? I wanna get into
1: a few vaccine issues before
0: we are out of time
1: here. So one is, you know, For all my criticism of President Biden on vaccines around the world, vaccine mandates have been really, really important. You know, everybody's like, oh, this is a horrible thing to do, you shouldn't have done it. As people come up to the deadlines for these these vaccine um, mandates, you know, airlines, school districts, et cetera, they're they're getting vaccinated by and large, right? Um, They've been really, really important in helping to shape social norms around vaccination. Um, There's a whole bunch of people in the health professions and police and other places in which they're like, you know, it's my right not to be vaccinated. Well, actually, if you went to elementary school in the United States, you were vaccinated against measles, mumps, and rubella, diphtheria, and a whole bunch of other things. So, like, maybe, but you know, you did it before you got to do it then. What's more important to me is that, you know, in New Haven or New York or other cities, you know, in quote unquote blue states. There are pockets of unvaccination, to, of lower vaccination too, and it's not about ideological resistance. It's about the fact that you know we've you know we talked about the sort of deficiencies in American public health. The deficiencies in American public health are also regional and geographic. Um, there are zip codes in the U.S. that have had worse life expectancy than others that are ten-minute drive from each other, and those are the places where we're having trouble with vaccination. We've underinvested in public health, and in um, an infrastructure of care in many communities around the U.S., and we're paying the price because there's communities that, you know, are a short drive for me that have a, a, a lower vaccination rate, you know, um, much lower than, than the community I live in. And that's m- much more sort of um, amenable to sort of um, getting people vaccinated than sort of to hardcore sort of anti-vaxxers you know from the right or left um, but you know we still haven't done enough to sort of reach those who are reachable
0: and, and in terms of and you've used and written about use the term vaccine apartheid and this is a callback to the earlier part of our conversation um, is can progress be made on that I mean are we in a in an interim moment where we're finally going to see some justice and the mrna producers are going to have to make the patents available and the IP will be relaxed or do you think this is they're locked in on this?
1: I I don't care what they are. You know, the, the you know, the point is, is like, we don't give up. I mean, yeah. you know, the Ron Klein demonstration, you know, there are four of us in front of the house. Okay. There may be, there's more than that about half a dozen of us. Um, but keep your ears and eyes open for what happens over the next few days. There's going to be escalation. There's a whole group of people working around the world around the clock on these issues, not just about the patents and TRIPS waiver, but about tech transfer and um, a congressional strategy to figure out how to sort of support the the WHO hubs on vaccine production. So there's a lot of people working whose energy and commitment have been flagged. You know, the interesting thing is is many of the people who've been fighting the AIDS fight, who are fighting the COVID fight now, we've been around for 30, 40 years, and we've seen George Bush, we've seen Ronald Reagan, we've seen Clinton, we've seen President come and go, and we're still here. And um, most of us, you know, some of us are getting long in the tooth, but many of us, um, there's a whole new young generation of people who are committed to these sort of equity issues in health, and we're not gonna give up. I mean, you know, the president would like us to go away, Ron Klain would like us to go away, Jeff Stein would like us to go away. It's not gonna happen.
0: I, I really appreciate that. And, and also not giving too much oxygen to the anti-vax movement, but actually talk about the mass movement on the other side for healthcare, I mean, is that, I mean, my question, I guess, if somebody says to you, you know, hey, Greg, I wanna get involved in that. I wanna be there at the trailer with the bones or whatever the equivalent of that is to try to really get people around the world to wake up to this. What steps can they take? Because I think COVID is hard in that regard. So much of the suffering has been behind doors. It's it's hard to know how somebody can intervene in a, something of scale, this magnitude, this global scale.
1: What should they do? I mean, look, if you're a student on a college campus, Partners in Health has PIH Engage, you know, there's student groups. Um, I would head towards groups that are working on healthcare access. You know, Public Citizen in D.C. um, is not a membership organization, but there's a group called Right to Health Action that sort of sprung up to do webinars last year. Just to sort of inform people about the latest science and the latest sort of political stuff that was going on. They have like tens of thousands of people now in their database, which they are turning their sites on Congress, right? So they're using these people who are part as webinars to build this huge movement um, to to push people on on COVID. But these people are also going to be um, important for right to health in general as we see the the COVID pandemic recede uh, in our future. So there's there's smaller groups that are doing this work. Um, they're um, they're out there. Um, I would look for healthcare access groups. I don't. There's not like a mass movement. You know, I don't think it's move on or indivisible or any of these sort of um groups that sort of worked during the sort of trump era um, against the, the gross excesses of the administration but they're groups that have been around for a long time working on health equity and health access all over the us and um it, it, people can plug in um if your if your listeners want to email me they can do so and i can try to hook them up with people i know who might be in their states um, you know we One of the things I wish we had was a much more robust infrastructure to let people plug in, Um, you know. um, But that's something we need need to think about how to do. It's as you're sort of in the midst of the fight. It's hard to think about your sort of long term sustainability and planning. But that's sort of um, one of the deficits of the of our movement that we sort of are so caught up in the present that we don't have time to plan and to think about the future.
0: Well, we should probably wrap up, but I want to just take a second as we're closing out, Greg. I mean, you know. You're writing the column for The Nation. I see you in the media all the time. I'm not quite sure. I, maybe you don't sleep, but how how's the other work going? I mean, the, you know, your opioid addiction work, HIV, AIDS work. Uh, give us a little bit of a snapshot of that and what we can look for. I'm not going to say when the pandemic is over, but, you know, next phase of work for you coming out of this.
1: Well, one is I'm like running on lots of adrenaline and, you know, it's unsustainable. Like you know. It just, I started Lipitor the other day. You know, like I'm not, you know, like the pandemic is not um, coming to me in the form of a, a, a SARS-CoV-2, but it's coming to me in the form of sort of like other health sort of issues. And so like, one is like people should take care of each other and take care of themselves to get through this moment. Um, I'm interested in, in the health of people who use drugs. And that means preventing overdose, reducing the transmission of HIV. And I continue to work on those issues um, with my... Research group and with my colleagues at Yale and across the country, um, the opioid epidemic exploded during during the COVID pandemic, and nobody was paying very much attention. Um, and so, um, I'm trying to figure out a way to balance my life, both for my own health, but also because I think it's really, really important to start to think about um, the rest of sort of the world of health that um, it's going to be there when we we um, start to th- stop thinking about COVID and realize how worse everything has gotten in our absence as we've all sort of worked against this new pandemic.
0: Just a reminder, you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 6 p.m. Eastern time. And I wanna thank my guest, Greg Gonsalves, for taking for your generosity of time today and, and talking about your your background in research and activism and bringing us up to speed on what we can do now about this pandemic. Thanks, Greg, and um, take care of yourself, but also keep it up.
1: Thanks, Scott. Great to be here.
0: Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.